we will continue. Lewis Hedden is going to read uh, our scripture passage today. It is a long passage. It, it is the entire chapter 7 of Acts and the opening two verses of, of chapter 8. And, um, and so really, wherever you are, if you can, just kind of uh, focus yourself, center yourself to hear, hear this whole, whole word read to you. Uh, but before Lewis reads, let me just say a word of prayer for our service. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much, God. We thank you for the ways you've already met us, God, the ways you've already ministered to us uh, in the last uh, 20, 25 minutes, Lord, through, through song, Lord, through, through Psalm 99, through Anne's beautiful, convicting prayer, Lord, we, we pray that you would continue to meet us, continue to minister to us, Lord, in the remainder of the service. Uh, be with me as I teach. Be with us as we as we break bread together at the Lord's table. And Lord, please be with Lewis as he reads, uh, continues to read this book that, that we are, are embedding ourselves in for the next year, God. Give him clarity of speech. Give him peace of mind as he reads your sacred word. And may those words, God, not the words of man, but the words of you, may those words pierce our hearts this morning. We pray all this, we give it to you now in your name. Amen. Lewis. Good morning. Um, Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through Acts chapter 8, verse 2. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, 
until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this report, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn 
brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and make great lamentation over him. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, now, I hope you guys are ready for a six-hour sermon as we unpack that verse by verse. Uh, no, truly, actually, I mean, this passage in, in and of itself, um, I really encourage you to just to maybe go back this week and read through it again. Uh, maybe chop it up, but just but just really read through this. It's It's such a wonderfully specific um, historical depiction of God's people and of so much that happens in the Old Testament. Lewis, thank you so much for reading that. Um, easily our longest reading uh, that we've had in, the, in our 13 weeks of services. Um, we're making our way through the book of Acts. Last week, we, we unpacked chapter six uh, as we began to see the community of God rise up in the face of injustice. And as we got a glimpse of the community of God, really of Stephen specifically, uh, rising up in the face of false witness, in the face of lies. Now, some context here, uh, just to remind you, Stephen, he's considered a leader of this growing church, this, this community in the first century. Uh, in chapter six, we're told that he was a man of great faith and filled with the Holy Spirit, and that he was doing amazing things and, and wondrous signs. Uh, not dissimilar to how we heard about Peter and John in earlier chapters in Acts, about how great of teachers that they were, the things that they were saying. And I say not dissimilar, uh, because like Peter and John, Stephen also faced similar consequences uh, for his public display of faith. 
chapter six ends with him being accosted. I'm not sure if he was actually arrested, uh, but he was certainly surrounded by leaders, by, by a crowd, and was being accused of blasphemy, being accused of, of all sorts of, of lies. And the chapter ends with the stunning imagery that as he faced all of these lies and accusations, his face was like that of the face of an angel. And then chapter six ends. And then here we are uh, in Acts 7. And the high priest, the high religious leader, hearing all of these accusations, seeing Stephen's face, uh, he looks at Stephen and he asks, is all of this true? And instead of saying yes or no, Stephen puts on a performance. He, he gives a speech, a speech rooted in the history of the Jewish people, the history of Israel, a history that Stephen certainly knew well as a Jew, and a, and a history that those accusing him, these, these religious leaders accusing him of all these things, that they certainly knew well, too. But his answer, uh, the speech, it, it actually doesn't begin, right, with that answer, yes or no. And though the speech is one of history, uh, his words don't begin with history either. They actually begin with words of, of relationship and fellowship, followed by words of power, the words of relationship. Stephen looks at this crowd that is out to get him and addresses them as brothers and fathers, not enemies, not strangers. It's not a word of correction or condemnation, brothers, fathers. And then he follows those words of relationship with words of power. He doesn't begin with Israel. He doesn't begin with the Jewish people. He begins with God the God of glory. The order is important because he does not begin with Abraham. He begins with God. After saying, brothers and fathers, listen up. The first words that they hear, the God of glory. Stephen is answering this high priest's question by telling a story. And this is what we are focused on today. The power of story. And in that, the power of history. Uh, there was an NPR report uh, I remember that I came across uh, earlier on in the COVID-19 pandemic in April of last year. And it was about how stories and narratives connect us to different people, connect us to different places. The idea was that just a few weeks into the pandemic, with so much uncertainty on the horizon and already so much death around us, that we needed to be transported to another place, to another time. And now the, the NPR report, it doesn't just kind of pontificate about this, it actually points to science about the power of story and narrative. A professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University told NPR that when you hear a story unfold, your brain waves start to synchronize with those of the storyteller. Uh, NPR reported when this professor and his team recorded the brain activity in two people, as one person told a story and the other listened, they found that the greater the listener's comprehension, the more closely the brainwave patterns mirrored those of the storyteller. What that means is when you comprehend a story, when you really consume it, the reason why it captivates you so much or at least one reason why it does, is because your brain is rewiring. It, it refocuses to truly connect you with that story. Similarly, I think most of you know my background is in journalism, specifically in radio, uh, and that's actually why Celine and I moved uh, to New York City 11 years ago was for me to work with a station here. Uh, one of the reasons I love radio is because it gives you the ability to connect with other people. 
I actually always felt like radio was one of the more powerful mediums because often when you listen to a radio station, when you hear a morning show host or a DJ or a talk show host speak, you're intently listening. Yeah, sometimes the music on a radio station might kind of turn into background noise, but when the microphone turns on, when the DJ speaks or the host talks, you typically pay close attention. It's an intimate relationship. There's no visuals. There's no uh, overproduction or anything like that. It's, it's, it's just a voice telling a story and you're listening. I think that's why people love podcasts, right? Especially narrative podcasts, because it immerses you in a story, in an experience. And all you really have to rely on is a voice, is that vocal connection. So either you're going to get hooked or you're not. Most people don't just cash, casually listen to, to narrative podcasts. I've always believed this. I love radio. I love audio. And actually, uh, earlier this year, again, some science confirmed uh, what I have felt and what I've believed about the power of radio and audio. Uh, a study was released that tracked and measured the emotional connection and attention an individual has to different kinds of media that he or she might be consuming. They tested all kinds of media. And they found that audio had the highest, highest score of connection and attention of this emotional relationship. Music, radio, podcasts, whatever it might be, we really connect to something often when we hear it. Now, of course, this is true for watching something too, right? We can get sucked into a movie or, or a television series because it captivates us, because it draws us in and keeps us there. A great novel keeps you turning pages because the words jump out at you and your mind begins to race and, and paint pictures as you imagine the story coming to life. But I think there is something special about the spoken word. This is actually why we pray before the reading of the, ser uh, of the sermon scripture each week. I believe that the reading out loud of God's word can be just as powerful, actually uh, more powerful than the sermon itself. And because of that, it warrants a time for us to pause to pray, to prepare, to receive God's word. There's something unique about hearing scripture out loud in someone else's voice as you sit and listen. It's a sacred thing. So why do I share all of this? Well, what we see in today's long passage, we see Stephen, the storyteller. Stephen is giving a speech, absolutely, but more than a speech, he's telling a story. As I said, this is a story of history, and it's, and it's history that everyone listening knew. And Stephen knows what he is doing. He's not spinning a story or embedding his opinion into this history. He's, he's really pointing his listeners to very specific plot points. Uh, most scholars believe within this speech, within this story, and again, this is a good reason to go back and read through this. Uh, within the story, there are around 30 different citations uh, to the Old Testament found in what Stephen is saying. His words are rooted in the word of God. They're rooted in scripture. He's doing this not as a lesson, not as, a, as an opportunity to, to educate his audience, but he's doing this because he's reminding these leaders of how far they've distanced themselves from their God that they claim to follow. This is spelled out dramatically, beginning in verse 51, uh, when Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's not that they aren't following the right tasks or doing the right things. They're all physically uncircumcised, and yet that's not what matters. 
What Stephen accuses them of is not listening to the word of God. And though they might obey some Old Testament laws, some traditions, they're not living out the teachings of the Messiah who Stephen knows has already come and risen into the heavens. Yes, they're, they're uncircumcised, but their lives don't reflect why that covenant exists in the first place. Their lives don't reflect their God. And when Steve, and, and, and through that, so Stephen draws them back into their history. But this time, as, as he, as he kind of nears the end of that historical uh, uh, story, as he continues to draw them in, it's now not a story or the history of the God of glory, but it's the history of their ancestors. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And then fast forwarding to the first century, he holds these leaders accountable in the same way. And he says, your fathers killed those prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one, of Jesus Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Just like your ancestors, you have killed a prophet, but not just any prophet. You've killed the righteous one. I mean, this is the TED Talk to end all TED Talks. Stephen pulls no punches. He lays a foundation of grace, calling those who are accusing him of blasphemy, calling them brothers. And on that foundation of grace, he reminds everyone that what he is about to say begins with nobody other than the God of glory. He paints a picture of the history of God's people, of Israel. He draws his audience into it so that he can more clearly show them where they've gone wrong. And where they've gone wrong, if you can synthesize it into one thing, they've resisted the Holy Spirit. The story of this God of glory and the people of this God of glory unfolds as Stephen tells it. And then he calls these leaders out. These leaders who feel threatened by this man and, and, and other leaders who, who have done wondrous signs, who have spoken amazing things, as we're told throughout Acts, as we're told in, in, in Acts chapter 6. They're threatened by this man, by Stephen, who was filled with faith and filled with the Holy Spirit. And instead of allowing themselves to enter into the story and enter into the story of Stephen's life and his work, they resist. They resist not only Stephen, but they resist the Holy Spirit. And I believe, and I, I might go, be going on a bit of a stretch here, but I believe the hearers of this story... Those, those religious leaders, this crowd that is forming, I believe their brains, as they're hearing this story, they are rewiring and they are truly connected with the story on a deeply emotional, even spiritual level, but not in a good way. Because what happens? They don't just get angrier than they already are. They don't shout and just say, shut up, Stephen. They don't shout and try to argue on top of what Stephen's saying. They don't sit there ignoring the words that are coming out of his mouth, acting as if Stephen doesn't exist. We're told in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. It's a very clear image. It kind of gives you goosebumps if you really think about it. Imagine being so consumed with anger that you grind your teeth at someone. Other translations use the word gnashed, that they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. They're snarling, right? They, I can almost picture them breathing heavily, kind of salivating, angry and frustrated, ready to attack. They were hearing Stephen loud and clear. His words pierced their hearts. 
But as he already said, they've resisted the power of the Holy Spirit. And so rather than asking Stephen, what shall we do when they hear these words? Like many people did when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Instead of saying that, they grind their teeth in anger at Stephen. And then, of course, they're so enraged, so consumed with anger, with hatred. I would, I would say they're so threatened by what Stephen has been doing and saying that they drag him out of Jerusalem and they stone him. Before he's cast out of the city, though, we're told in verse 55 that, once again, Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, a reiteration of this man being filled with faith, uh, as we're told in chapter 6. And as if knowing his fate, he looks up to the skies and he sees the glory of God, the same God whose story he just told. He sees him standing with the ascended Jesus Christ, with the righteous one. This is what pushed the religious leaders, I would say. This is what pushed the religious leaders over the edge. Stephen sees this and he says out loud, Behold, I see the Son of Man. Stephen claims to see the Messiah, the righteous one. And the leaders have had enough. And they drag him out of the city. Now, it's important to note that Luke, the author of, of Acts, um, He's a very gifted writer. Uh, he in him he's he's often referred to as a journalist or as a reporter. The way that he writes, uh, and he gives us the necessary details of the stories that he tells. And so, what we see here, we have not been given any details about legal action, about anything like that. What we see here has not been a trial. This is not an official legal gathering. It's it, it's a riot. And what ensues from verse 58 to the end of chapter 7 is not an execution, but as Justo Gonzalez says, it is a lynching. It is a mob riled up against an individual that drags him outside of a city to murder him. Just as Stephen tells a story for the religious leaders now, Luke brings us into the story of Stephen himself, into his suffering and into his unjust killing. Luke brings us back into the story of Jesus Christ. In Luke's own gospel in chapter 23, we get the account of Jesus being taken outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, where he too would be executed, where he would be lynched hanging on a cross. Outside the city where he looks at those who falsely accused him, who have spit on him, who have accosted him, who are now crucifying him, where he looks at them and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Outside the city, where as he takes his final breath, he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And now in Acts 7, Luke is drawing his readers back into that story of Christ by bringing them into the story of Stephen, who outside of the city of Jerusalem is stoned, who outside of the city of Jerusalem looks at those who have falsely accused him, who are now seeking to kill him, where he looks at them and says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Outside the city, where as he nears his final breath, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's teaching and the teaching of all the disciples, it was misunderstood by the religious leaders because what he had been teaching, what was being proclaimed, was that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the fulfillment 
of the religious temple and of the religious law, of the very things these leaders were protecting, the very things that provided these leaders with their power and their influence. And so as far as they were concerned, that threatened who they were. But Stephen knew where his courage would come from when he faced threats. Again, in Luke's gospel, this time in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus Christ is talking to his followers, and he says, When they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, do not worry about how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. Now, though Stephen didn't hear those words from Christ at that moment in the Gospel of Luke, he no doubt saw the faith and trust embodied in those in his community, in the disciples and followers who first heard it, who have called him now to be a leader alongside them. This was evident. As we're told, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit when he gave this speech. But more than the mere words that left his mouth, I believe that when the Holy Spirit teaches us, and I think this is one way this story, this, this passage draws us in and speaks to us today, when the Holy Spirit teaches us, he fills us with courage and boldness, with fearlessness, to trust in God and in God alone. That in the face of being stoned to death, we might look up to the skies and see our destiny standing with Christ and with God our Father. What Luke is doing here as the author of Acts, he is drawing us in through his narrative. He's transporting us to the first century, to Jerusalem, to this riot, to this exact time and place, to see the courage of this first spirit-filled church. Like those in the first century that we've read about throughout Acts up to this point, if we allow ourselves to be drawn in, if our hearts are pierced by the very word of God, will we respond and say, what shall we do as we pursue living in this community of God? Or will we grind our teeth and riot against the word of God? Will we forgive those who have oppressed us, who have brought us pain? Or will we bear false witness? Will we attack those who we disagree with, who challenge us, who threaten our own power or influence? Will we keep our gaze on heaven, on the ascended, alive, resurrected Jesus Christ? Or will we see injustice around us and like Saul, who we'll hear much, much more about for the rest of our time in the book of Acts? Like Saul, will we avert our eyes from Christ as we look upon injustice and through our silence and complicity, give it our approval? What will our story be as Hope Hell's Kitchen? I pray that our story will be one that is centered around love. Love for this neighborhood, love for our neighbors, not love for ourselves, our own power, or our own influence. Love even in the face of persecution, love even in the face of injustice, love rooted in history. Not afraid of history, but rooted in it, allowing it to shape us today and tomorrow. What shall we do? What will our story be? As I was preparing this week and thought about that, uh, about love, about what that means, and how, how Stephen truly 
I think, really embodied the love of Jesus Christ as he asked God to forgive the very people who were lynching him. As I thought about that, uh, I was reminded of a recent news story that I know uh, some of you uh, know very well uh, about an Asian American man who was sucker punched uh, in Central Park two weeks ago. Uh, he had two fractures in his cheekbone and, and it happened in front of his, his wife and child. Uh, he was interviewed locally by ABC7, and as he recounted the story, as he showed his bruised face and his bloodied eye, he said in response to this terrible attack, an attack that occurred in the midst of rising Asian hate and attacks in our city and throughout the country, in, in the midst of all of that, he said, there is no room for hate. Hate will constantly transform and it will constantly evolve until it is squashed by love. There's no room for hate. Stephen had no room for hate for those persecuting him. His gaze was fixed on Jesus. The church has no room for hate. Our gaze must be fixed on Jesus. This doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to injustice. No, we stop, we lament, we repent, and we act just as Anne prayed for this morning. We seek justice just as we worship a God who loves justice and loves equity. But it means we seek to squash hate. We seek to squash injustice with love, with the love of Christ, through the power and the help, through the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We'll see this unfold more and more as we continue to embed ourselves in this book of Acts over the coming months. We'll see this unfold more and more in the very life of Saul. Resist the Holy Spirit or be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with hate or be filled with love. What will our story be as Hope Hell's Kitchen? Will it be about us? Or will it be about the God of glory? That question is one reason why I am so confident in the power of the Lord's table and why we come to the Lord's table each and every week, because the story of this table is only about the God of glory and the power of this God and the love of this God. The story of a God whose body was broken for his people, the story of a God who gave his life for his people, the story of a God who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, and who continues to watch over us today. The story of a God who loves us so much that even with all of that, he still works to see his people reconciled to him and to one another. That is this table. That is the Lord's Supper. And we come to this table to be drawn into the revolutionary story of this God, to remember who this God was, who he is today, and who he promises to be tomorrow, a God who is always with us. We don't often talk about it at the table, but we have to. We, we, we confront the heinous death of this Christ, just as God's people confronted the heinous death of Stephen. In the opening of chapter 8, we're told that the men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. As beautiful and encouraging as this image of Stephen was while being persecuted, right? He sees the face of God in the heavens. As beautiful as that might be, we can't rush past the unjust death, this death that should not have been. And at the table, though we know how beautiful and encouraging the image of the cross is today, it's a global sign of hope, of love. It's also a reminder of the unjust death of Jesus Christ. 
James Cone calls the cross wonderful and beautiful and painful and tragic. And as he says, the cross, and I would say this table, helps us to know from where we came and where we must go. Because the cross does not remain painful and tragic. The death of Stephen does not remain painful and tragic, as we'll see. The death of Christ does not remain unjust. It points us to the life-changing love, the, the resurrected hope of Christ. Beauty, wonder, pain, tragedy. These things capture the cross. They capture the Lord's table. They capture life. They capture faith. Life and faith in the first century. Life and faith in 2021. Beauty and wonder, pain and tragedy, the heavens opening up, and death on this earth. A face like an angel in deep lamentation. How are these things hitting you right now? What has God put on your heart or your mind as you've heard some of this, as you've maybe been drawn into the story of Stephen, the story of this community? As we prepare to take communion together, I want to invite you to think about those things, to wrestle with the good and the bad, the hard and the joyful in your life right now. Where do you see the skies opening up to show you a glimpse of your Lord Jesus Christ looking down at you? Where do you see the needed time of grief and lament that you've maybe been avoiding or trying to move past too quickly? What shall we do? The answer to that question will be different for each of us right now. And yet, for us as a community, the answer is to come together, to bring our different answers to this table, and to commune with one another and with the Holy Spirit. So take the next few moments of silence to, to think through this, to offer up your own prayer, to consider what God might be saying to you this morning, to consider your own story and what it means for that story to be rooted in the God of glory.